I, I'm going to share with you a, a really powerful subject this morning. And the subject I want to, to think about is the word confession. And we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 9. So if you um, are looking in, in your Bibles, look at Nehemiah chapter 9, confession. Because here in uh, chapter 9, something incredible is taking place. It is the rebooting of the nation of Israel. They have to get it right. They have to make the foundation correct. And I want to tell you something. As I talk about confession, I want this to be incredibly positive. Because so often when we hear sermons about confession, it's very condemning. And you know, you need to confess your sins, you ugly, wormy sinners. And, um, and of course you are. But... I'm only joking. But you know that actually confession is the sweetest and the most beautiful gift the Lord has given us. It is a weapon against the lies of the enemy. It is a, it is a beautiful, beautiful process of intimacy, of us growing in our relationship with God and that relationship growing in the most beautiful ways. But often the way that we've heard messages like this preach is with a sense of profound condemnation, not with a sense of profound hope and freedom and life. Let me tell you something, God is good and God is for you, not against you. He loves you and he cares for you. And so often it's so easy because of, um, of our, our default to bring judgment and condemnation into so many areas. And yet really what the Lord wants to bring is he wants to bring healing. He wants to bring hope. He wants to bring his presence into our lives. So Nehemiah chapter 9, and, and you know for somebody who is completely sinful like myself, somebody who needs the transforming power of God in his life, who needs the purity of Christ at work in his life, like myself, I need to understand this subject and I need to get this right because confession was the key as a confused teenager, as a 15-year-old rebellious individual, as a 15-year-old that had never heard the gospel and it had not been presented to me ever. I went to school, but I was expelled from school when I was 15. And people always want to know, why were you thrown out from school? Because people are nosy. And <laughs> it's our pastor, why was he thrown out from school? Well, you know, it's obvious. You know, fighting, gambling, drinking, and the other things. And, and I, was, I was a troublemaker. I was confused. And yet the day Jesus came into this confused individual's life was the day I discovered that all the guilt and all the inventory and all of my mess I could give to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he cleaned me, and he took away my pain, and he replaced it with joy of salvation. And sometimes we forget that about our message, and when we look at this, this is what is happening in Nehemiah chapter 
9 is that there is a work of God so deep, so profound, because they have wrecked the nation, they have been in slavery, they've been in exile, things have gone wrong, they're trying to rebuild and they're getting it right step by step. They're getting aligned with God. If you missed that sermon two weeks ago, I preached a sermon on getting aligned with God. They're getting the word of God as central to their lives and we need to be able to do that. And here they are now engaging in deep spiritual work of dealing with confession and dealing with the battle that they're facing and the difficulty that they're going through. And on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. If you would have been there, you'd have felt and heard the smell of repentance in the air. In the ancient world, the smell of repentance in Israel was the burning of ashes, the preparation before coming to the Lord, the saying no to food, because they meant business. They knew that their nation was ruined or their nation could be saved and they knew by their history that to save their nation meant they had to get right with their God. Nothing's changed. We have to continually get right with our God. We've got to continually allow him to be at work in our lives. And on this day they gathered and there was the smell of the burning in the air and they're putting dust on their heads and those of Israel descent had separated themselves from the foreigners. They were starting to work out what to do. They were separating themselves from practices of the land and the foreigners that had dragged them down. That's idol worship. Things that they were putting first. The way that they engaged in relationship. And they stood in their place and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They meant business. They wanted to get to grips with dealing with the inventory of their lives. They wanted to look at who they were and work their way through and be able to say, this is what has been wrong in my life. And I start to confess it. And I even look at my ancestors who have acted in this way and I own it. And I want to get this right and I want to get it correct. It's a very powerful experience in our lives to actually really take an inventory of who we are, the attitudes we have. And evangelicals, sadly, over the last 50 years, have lost the ability to confess. We've sort of just put it under a little prayer, Lord, forgive me of all my sins, and we move on as if that's really going to change anything. And we have to understand the intimacy and the closeness And they stood where they were and they read the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. That's three hours there. So they opened their Bibles and they read their Bibles for three hours, uh, a quarter day, and spent another quarter of the day in confessing, in worshipping to their Lord. And so they got ready and they started to confess And the Levites gathered together. And as they gathered together, they stood there and they declared, standing 
up and praising the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And they declared, blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts and the earth and all that is on it and the seas and all that is in them. And you give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So they read scripture for hours. They prayed for hours and confessed. They worshipped for hours. And then there's this great prayer. And the prayer runs verse after verse. And you can break the prayer down in, in Nehemiah 9 into three sections. God's greatness. God's goodness. And God's grace. So you move right the way through this prayer where they declare God's greatness. And very often what we forget is the reason we want to keep our lives correct before the Lord is very simple. He's in control. He's great. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the mighty Lord. He's the King of all creation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is our deliverer. He is our hope. He is our door. He is magnificent. And you know, as me as a created being in the image of God, I better realize God is great. And because God is great, in the first few verses here, they they talk about his greatness. They talk about the fact that he alone is worthy to receive the praise that comes from God. That he alone is worthy to receive what we've got. We want to give it to him. They declare that actually we want no other God alone apart from God. We want God as number one. And that is the challenge in our, our lives when we talk about confession. What we're you're saying is, God, you are number one in our life. God, I want to worship you. They bring it back from there of worshiping God to saying, look at the stars in the sky. Look at the massive, immense nature of God in the universe and the galaxies and the stars. And they declare God's greatness in creation and God's greatness in universe and what is happening and the way that that is his, his, his wonder and is amazing. They're standing there in awe of who God is. And they look at the whole of creation. I mean, have you ever stood there in awe of who God is? And you can see this. It's a little bit like that feeling when you stand. I've, I've, uh, first time I ever went to Niagara Falls... I was 17 years old. I'd landed in New York. I uh, traveled through Pennsylvania. It's the first time I stayed uh, with brothers uh, on a Mennonite farm in Pennsylvania. And then I jumped on a bus and I went north to Canada. And I ended up at at Niagara Falls. And I'd, I'd heard about it, but I'd never seen it. And in those days, in the 80s, 84 or something, I arrived there and, and you could get really close to Niagara Falls. And there I was, a young teenager, backpacking Christian. And, 
And I wandered towards the edge of the falls and it was gigantic. It was overwhelming. It was glorious. And I stood on the very edge and you could just at those times be a meter away and you could see the power. And you know what it did? It terrified me. At that moment, I was afraid. Slightly weird, I know, because at that moment, I kind of had a desire because it was so incredible to just dive in. Um, yeah, the Lord's dealt with that fear. Um, but I said, oh, it's so compelling, so mystical, so powerful. That is nothing compared with the greatness of our God. The glory, the honor, the feeling. I felt that when I stood in front of Victoria Falls in, in Africa and, and saw the water raging down in Africa where Stanley and Livingston, the great missionaries, had gone. And I stood there and it was overwhelming and incredible. And then monkeys were wandering by. And it was, it was, it was, uh, it was wonderful. You see... What we understand is that his greatness is shown in creation. And that creation shows that in his providential power to hold creation together. This world isn't like a watch that he's just wound up and said, get on with it. He's involved in the intricate workings of our lives. And even at that point, the hosts of heaven, they worship the greatness of God, the angels themselves. You see, we get the macro, but when it comes to confession, sometimes we don't understand the micro. We don't understand that God is interested. Yes, God is vast. Yes, God is great. And sometimes I find it hard to grab an understanding of God. Oh, I've done theology. I've done systematic. I've read it. I've read all the great. But when I just think about God and I stare at the universe and the vastness of it, I just I find it incredible. Overwhelming even. But can I remind you something? Can I remind you that, that Psalm 147 teaches this, that even when the raven cries out and is hungry, God hears the cry of that raven. Wow. In fact, he says in that same psalm, uh, verse 9 is it, where the, he, he numbers the starry hosts of the stars in the heavens. That's amazing, isn't it? It also goes on and and says something incredible that he knows every hair on our head. What does Luke 12 verse 7 says that? He knows every follicle on your head. Wow. Do you know how many hairs you've got on your head? I'm avoiding hair jokes at this moment. You have a hundred thousand hairs on your head for the average person. It's amazing, isn't it? Hundred thousand. Do you know how many hairs you lose every day according to Google? One hundred you lose every day. And God knows every hair that you lose every day. So you may have the greatness of God... But understand, he knows every hair on your head. He knows every follicle. In fact, he says in Matthew, doesn't he? 
Matthew 10, 26, that even when a sparrow falls, he sees it falling. Wow. He's a detailed God. He's vast and yet detailed. He's amazing. He's powerful. And, and this is why it's so important. Sparrows are incredible creatures. The house sparrow. You know, there's about 7 billion house sparrows in the world. They've always followed humanity. Where humanity is, the sparrow has been. The sparrow has been present with the... As soon as humanity settled and made farms, the sparrows came. They have been with us... With some some see them as vermin, others see them as a necessity. Chairman Mao in 1959 got rid of all the sparrows in one year, declaring this is the year we kill a billion sparrows, and he did it. And they had the best crop they ever had. But what they didn't realize was get rid of the sparrows. The sparrows eat the grain that we grow, but the sparrows feed their chicks with the insects in the air. And the following year, 1960, they had the worst crop ever. Three, 35 million people were affected. And as a result of killing the sparrows, the whole system, ecosystem was out and everything started to fall to pieces in Mao's China. But if a billion sparrows died in that year, at least hundreds of millions... The Lord says, I knew every one that fell to the ground. I knew every one. This is the goodness of God. That he knows you. He knows your battles. He knows the micro and the macro. He knows every detail. And you may feel like a common sparrow of no worth, but to God you are precious. And the most precious thing to him is the relationship that you can have with him. And even in the church, when confession came, um, and we understand this, when confession came, it brought a change and a difference. Here's a little uh, quote from John Steinbeck. If you want to destroy a nation, give it too much, make it greedy, miserable, and sick. This is the story of Nehemiah and the nation. The nation became greedy, miserable, and sick. In fact, verse 25 in the great prayer says, they became content, they became fat, they became so satisfied that they did not need God. And even in Acts 19.18, we heard that many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. They felt the fear of God, sons of Issachar, in that when, I won't go, but you know the story, when somebody tried to use Jesus as a formula, not as a relationship. When you think a formula will make give you spiritual power, you're in trouble. It is the intimacy and love and relationship with God that brings power. And so the sons of Issachar, and they got beat up, didn't they? And then everybody was afraid. People were believing in Ephesus. They started confessing their sins. They were not only confessing their sins, but they were building fires and burning all their spell books and their witchcraft. And Ephesus was full of witchcraft. And they had a big bonfire because they knew that actually the key to Christian living is confession. 
And so let me talk to you about the benefits of confession. Let me try and explain to you about this beautiful gift that you have with the benefits of confession. In a way that is respectful and in a way that helps you understand its power in your life. You see, when we bring our confessions, I do believe that the key with bringing our confessions is that we are precise, specific, and exact. See, I remember when I became a Christian, I understood that I wanted to be specific about the people I'd hurt and the things I'd dealt with and the, and the situations I'd found myself in. And so what confession actually brings, it brings freedom and healing. It brings forgiveness, it brings freedom, it affects our lives, it is powerful, it is the work of the cross. You might say it is mystical and it's, it's hard to understand. We would say that it is mysterious is a better word. It is glorious. It is a work of God that amazes me when people confess. See, it says if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That happens. It changes hearts over. I remember sitting with a young teenage girl and I guess she was now in her mid to late teens and I was a youth worker and she came and she'd found Christ but she had a a difficult time. Why? Because as a young teenage girl, which is often in Europe, she became pregnant and she chose to use termination as a form of contraception, I guess. Family were freaking out. She went through it, seemed logical and sensible, and she terminated uh, the pregnancy. But of course, what they did tell her was that rather than one baby, there were two. A number of years later, she gave her life to Jesus. And she sat opposite me. I was a youth pastor, and as she sat opposite me, she told me the whole story from beginning to end. It was profoundly humbling and, and powerful. And there's a lot of tears, as you can imagine. And then I explain this verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And right there she was specific. She took hold of this issue and she brought it to the foot of the cross and she gave it to Jesus. And I received a letter for many years I had this letter, a letter from her, and she said, you know, I never believed that I could feel freedom and forgiveness. She said, but I feel the love and the freedom and the, and the forgiveness of God throwing through my heart that I can restart my life again. It's amazing. I can't, I can't explain how that works. I can't explain how it all falls into place. But I know that it does. And she even spoke about that wonderful day when she would be united in God's great presence with those two children. No condemnation. Just freedom and healing. 
And I think sometimes we don't take the time to actually deal with our junk and with our issues. We don't actually say, well, if I confess my sins, if I'm actually honest, if I sit, you know, I was not her priest, but I was present with the great high priest as the Lord did his work. I remember sat with another friend of mine, and when I was growing up, all my friends were on heroin. I tried to get off it. Many of them addicted for many years. It was an epidemic growing up in the 80s when heroin really took hold of, 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 of Britain. And I remember the day when I heard the news that his girlfriend had died on the living room carpet. He found Christ, my friend. They weren't even using heroin, they were using a prescription alternative to help them get free. But they'd just taken far too much. Saved it up or something. And he came and sat with me and I sat across from him and... We went through this. We went to that moment of pain. We went to that moment of great darkness. And we allowed the forgiveness of God to come. And it was like this black blanket over him was lifted off. And he was free. It doesn't take away the sense of regret and pain. He, he understood that. But the condemnation, the shame, the inability to move on, the inability to build his life, <coughs> the desire to just send himself into a deeper train-spotting experience of, of more and more drugs and pain, suddenly was gone and he could live his life and live for Jesus and serve his life for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I saw it lift off him. You see, that verse works. It forgives. It brings peace. It brings freedom. You see, it limits correction. And this is why it's so important in our own lives as born-again, believing Christians that we keep, keep the beauty of confession at the center of our lives in a specific, in a powerful way. Why? Because actually, some of us are sick and ill, it says, because we don't take spiritual things seriously. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink of the cup unworthily, not honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment, God's correction, God's discipline upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some of you have even died. That's a verse we pass over pretty quickly in the Bible, don't we? This isn't God that that's wants this. He wants us to, to confess our sin. He wants us to be aware of this. And it would seem to me that if we keep a healthy approach to confession from this verse, it would seem to me that my life expectancy is going to continue. That it has an effect that actually it stops the correction of God in our lives. And this is hard for us to understand. God is more interested in your relationship with him than he is 
in your comfort and your success. And he will make your life uncomfortable. I'm sorry. (laughs) Aren't you glad you came to church? He'll make your life uncomfortable and bumpy until you serve him and put him as number one. He'll keep prodding you and keep... Yeah. He'll keep doing that. Why? Because... He loves you as a loving father. He loves me as a loving father. And believe me, I've experienced the correction of God many times in my life and yearly in my life and monthly in my life in the same way that my own kids experience the correction of me in their life. And why do I correct them? Boy, because I love them. Boy, because I just want to go, come on. You know... That thing you're doing in class or that way you're acting, you know, you've got you've to be corrected here. In love, you've got to smarten up because I want you to succeed and I want you to do well and I want you to grow. The heart of the Father is always nudging us to get right. You see, what comes then, and this is why it's so beautiful, is healing comes. Healing of our pain, healing of our disappointments, healing of our difficulties. Healing comes. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. This is the most unpracticed verse in the evangelical world. Well, there could be others, but for me. We like private confession, and we like going, Lord, forgive me for that. I was a little bit, you know, and move on quickly. It's like fast food confession. It's like I'm going through the drive-thru of confession. Let me drive through, okay? As I drive through, hello, Lord. Yes, I'll have a Big Mac and fries. But by the way, I felt really angry at my co-worker. God bless you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. I'll pay by debit. And off you go. There should be nothing fast food about confession. Because confession is the beautiful process of a child coming to a father and saying, I'm struggling with this, help me. Help me to get it right. Help me to let it go. Help me to find healing. And there's something even very profound when you come and sit with somebody else and you say, you know, I struggle in this area. It's just that when when we get people saying that to us, often what we do is we go, oh, yeah, I'm me, and then you never do anything. It's not about story. When you confess or talk to somebody about a problem, it's never about telling the details. You don't have to say it happened on this dark night and the wind was blowing and the... And I was wearing a dark suit. You know, we don't, it's not a novel. God knows detail. But what it is, is coming to another brother or sister and sitting and saying, this is a battle in my life. Can you pray with me about it? And I confess it. And it brings healing. It brings It's because we are, he knows us to the point of he knows the common sparrow. He knows the heads, hair on our head. He knows every detail of our life. 
He knows the cry of the raven when the raven's hungry. Do you not think he knows your pain, your disappointments, and your battles? You say, well, what do you do then, Phil? What do you do? Well, I'm a pastor, so obviously I, I never sin. And, and, and people never say things to me that, that don't hurt me, because I'm, I'm, I'm unhurtable. And when people gossip or say mean things about me, it, it never, never bothers me. I don't feel angry or frustrated or shed a tear. I just go, oh, because I'm superhuman. Are you joking? I am. I'm joking completely. You don't become a pastor because you're hard and callous and tough. You become a pastor because you love people. And when you love people, the one thing you discover is that people, they can damage you. Is that true? They can damage you. You know, oh. So how do you deal with the damage? Well, I've had to learn to deal with damage right the way through my life. With family and life and ancestors, generations. I've learned to be very specific. I've learned to even write lists in my prayer journal where there was offense, where there was disappointment, where there is pain, where there is a battle. And then I've learned to come to my father and say, Father, forgive me, because I'm holding second-hand defense here. Maybe a place where you work and you've got staff and it's hard and, and they are so annoying and it's so wounding you, but you've not brought it to the Lord and one day you just go, I'm going to do an inventory of my relationship with my workplace and the people around me and I'm going to go through it and I'm going to let it go. I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to ask the Lord to do his healing and I'm going to break any power of darkness. And I'm going to ask the Lord to bring me freedom. And he does. You see, Nehemiah knew that above all, that once they got confession right, Israel would be healed again and the land would be prosperous and things would happen. Nehemiah knew that once they got it right and confessed that the correction they were experiencing, the terrible correction of Babylon, would all be put right and they could return to the way that God wanted to be because God was for them. It was their foolishness that got them in their mess. And he understood that it brings forgiveness and freedom. That the nation would be free again. The nation would reign. But more than that, what this brought in the history of Nehemiah was the preparation and the landing pad for a baby to be born in Bethlehem and for a saviour to die in the walls of Jerusalem, outside the walls of Jerusalem. It was all being prepared for God's mighty move. When we live a life of honesty and confession before the Lord about our weaknesses, 
we continually prepare the place where God can do a mighty move in our lives. And God can do things in our hearts. And so I don't know where you're at, but I know that confession of our sins and burning our books and getting rid of our stuff metaphorically is incredibly powerful. And you and I enter that beautiful journey of what theologically it's called. It's a process of inner sanctification. We are being changed. We are being saved. We are becoming like Jesus. Whatever junk you've got and wherever you've been and whatever you've been through, the Lord can rebuild your walls. Just allow him to do it, step by step, step by step in your life. Can we stand together as I pray? Lord, I pray that as we come before you, that you will give us the courage as your people to leave this gathering with a profound sense of yes. Lord, I'm going to get rid of my junk. Family matters. I'm going to let that junk go before your cross. Disappointments with business and work, I'm going to let it go before your cross. Marriages can be healed with confession and freedom. I'm going to let it go. Bodies, it seems, can be healthy again when I confess and let it go. You are loved by the goodness, the greatness, and the end of that great prayer, which goes on for, what was it, 36 verses. God's grace and faithfulness is for you this morning. And he loves you completely. Last night when I was praying, I got a, a picture and I was sharing this with our evening congregation and it was probably for somebody specifically there, but I got a very intense picture of a, a ball of wool very wrapped up and tangled with two ends. And just a sense that your life may feel very wrapped up and tangled and knotted, but the Lord is patient and he will untie your mess. And Father, I pray that this morning you'll start to unravel some of our messes in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.